Let us turn now for our scripture reading to the book of Colossians. And again, we read from the third chapter, Colossians chapter 3. We'll read the first 17 verses. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, these uh, loving commands of our text, and we're looking particularly at verses uh, 15 through 17, uh, but the prior uh, exhortations, commandments that we've considered last time also are to be heard in, in the same light, and that is that these commands are based on the saving grace of Christ. The grace that was freely bestowed upon these Colossian believers, and uh, they had come to know and experience that grace. And we heard last time how they are addressed in verse 12 as the elect of God, those who have been chosen by Him unto this salvation, and who are who are holy, who are set apart, who are. Uh, sanctified by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and who are beloved of God. And that is such an important uh, context in which we hear these exhortations for Christ-like living. And uh, we are to appreciate likewise that, that thankfulness and praise are, are the mood, uh, the atmosphere, you might say, of living together with Christ. In fact, in three times in the three verses that we're considering uh, this morning, 
there is the reference to thanksgiving. We have the, the, the command there in uh, verse 15 towards the end of the verse, and it says, and be thankful. And in verse 16, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing uh, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There are some uh, translations that render this word grace with the word thanksgiving. Uh, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts. And that's not a, a matter of any kind of textual variance in the original language. That's just the different ways in which this word can can legitimately be translated, either with grace or or with thanksgiving. But whatever the case might be in terms of what's preferable in that instance, when we come to verse 17, again, we have the concluding uh, phrase there, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. So thankfulness and and praise are are so prominent in the text that we're considering this morning. And of course, that thanksgiving and praise is the outflow of hearts that have tasted uh, the, the grace and mercy of God. The imperatives, as uh, it's been observed before, uh, or the commands of Christian living are grounded in the indicatives. That is, they are grounded in the statements of fact concerning Christ's saving work. And that is a crucial order that we must never forget. Christian living is grounded upon uh, the Christian faith in the free gift of salvation through God. And if you uh, just separate these things, you end up with moralism. You end up with uh, a, a kind of works righteousness. And uh, you uproot the true character of Christian living from its foundation in Christ. Live in thankful service together. That's our theme from these verses this morning. And uh, from the outset, it's important that we understand that service here does not refer to specific activities or tasks or positions of service alone, but really it's a way of uh, indicating a life that is lived as the redeemed of God, as those who have been liberated from the bondage of sin so that we might serve the Lord Christ, that we might uh, offer up that reasonable spiritual service of those who have experienced the mercy of God. And as those who are united to one another in Christian love. Last time we saw how it is Christian love that binds all together. So we are called in our text to live in thankful service together. And again, we want to begin by uh, what verse 15 calls our attention to in terms of God's grace to us. We are to live in thankful service as those who are reconciled to God uh, together. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body. The peace of God. God is the author of all true peace. In fact, He is frequently... Uh, referred to in the New Testament as the God of peace. There's at least three instances that I'm, that I'm aware of where God is so designated. In Romans 16, the God of peace shall crush Satan shortly under your feet. Feet. 
And the God of love and peace be with you. We'll read that verse later on in 1 Corinthians. The God of peace is uh, a frequent designation of the Lord. And when it comes to peace in our hearts, it depends, first of all, on being at peace with God. In order to have the peace of God in our hearts, we need to be at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace, brothers and sisters, is made through the blood of the cross of Christ, by which he reconciled us to himself, by which he removed that enmity that otherwise characterizes our relationship with God. And that characterizes his attitude also towards sinners in their sin. Apart from this reconciliation, people live with a hostile attitude towards the true God. They might think they can cozy up to a God of their own imagination, but the true God of Scripture provokes enmity. That's evident in the fact that they're not subject to his law. They hate his law as as an expression of his holy character. And as a result of that, that enmity and alienation from God, what are the things that characterize their lives? Fear. Fear of death. The fear of judgment. That's because they are not at peace with God. They lack the comfort and assurance of knowing that they are right with God, that they're accepted by a holy God. But being justified freely by His grace, we have peace with God. Now, that's the background to this exhortation here. It's assumed, but the exhortation really involves the fact that peace with God brings peace among people. In Paul's letter to Ephesians, these are are joined together in chapter 4, where uh, we read of our, or it's actually chapter 2, where it says, He, that is Christ, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the wall of separation. That is, he has has, uh, restored Jew and Gentile who otherwise were at enmity toward one another, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ that sinners who themselves were otherwise characterized characterized by mutual enmity are brought together in peace to God, with whom they now together have peace. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, You see, peace with God unifies sinners together with the realization of their common misery as sinners, but also a common deliverance that they then share. And so there are foundations for harmony and peace among people as they mutually are humbled with the realization of their own faults and sins. And as they mutually know the reality of God's mercy and grace to them, That common knowledge and experience creates a foundation for the practice of forgiveness towards one another and humility in their dealings with 
each other. They are both humbled uh, with the same realization of need, but they're lifted up also with a shared joy. Isn't it true that often uh, experiencing together some great danger or uh, some uh, terrible disaster or passing through some uh, terrible conflict into a place of safety and uh, deliverance creates a bond? Isn't that why, why veterans who have served together in the military and uh, who have served under combat together and who have shared uh, the hazards and the trauma of warfare and survive. They're bound together with a kind of, with a kind of connection that is unique to that shared experience. Well, shouldn't that ought to, shouldn't that characterize also the kind of, uh, fellowship and bond that is true of Christians together who have been delivered from the greatest plight and t- together rejoice in a common salvation? Peace with God removes a huge cause of contention with others. Well, what what does that mean? What is a huge cause of contention among us by nature? Well, isn't it the fact that we tend to be ruled by other people's opinion of us? We tend to be ruled by uh, either their approval that we want or their disapproval that we resent, we tend to be ruled by the way we're treated by others. In other words, by nature, the people in our lives, they loom large. They are big. And sadly, often in comparison, God is small. And so people control us. We're more concerned about uh, their approval, or avoiding their insults, sadly, often than we are concerned about God's approval and God's displeasure. But what happens when that's reversed? When that's reversed and we come to know God as great, as big, and yet we come to know Him as one who is our friend, one with whom we are at peace. Well, that that puts... Uh, human relationships in, into a, a perspective that can be found nowhere else. When this situation is reversed, then we have a peace with God that can rule over all these lesser disturbances. And it's a peace with God that is not threatened by others. It's a peace with God that doesn't depend upon others. And you see, when we have that, then we can put uh, unity in the body of Christ, above personal slights and personal grievances and and real hurts. That peace that we have, first of all, with God can rule. It can rule like an umpire over our anger and our envy and our desires for our event, for revenge and our hurts. It can serve like an umpire that says, you're out! Anger and bitterness, revenge, out of the heart. Peace rules here. And the peace of God can remove a huge obstacle that is such a source of the beginning and the ongoing conflicts that otherwise, sadly, often rule the hearts of God's people in the relationship with one another. 
So peace with God lays a profound foundation for peace with others. And it's that peace that is to rule our hearts. Now that doesn't happen easily, does it? In fact, it doesn't happen without great effort, growing sanctification, growth in the mind of Christ that we're going to sing about later. Ephesians 4 is very honest about that when it says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. Again, those uh, characteristics that we heard last time. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's rendered by other translations. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we need to hear that, don't we? We need to hear it often. We need to hear it repeated. And that's why the Bible often repeats such exhortations. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ in, in Mark chapter 9 says, uh, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. That's maturity. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Or in First uh, Thessalonians chapter chapter five, where we're exhorted to uh, to know and to recognize those who are over us and to admonish us in the Lord, to to esteem them highly for their work's sake. And then it says. Be at peace among yourselves. Of course, we could multiply instances where this uh, matter of peace is uh, given attention as something that's so crucially important. We need to we need to take to heart. We need to think about the significance of the language of our text, where it says, "Let the peace of God rule in your hearts," to which also you were called. You were called to peace, and you were called to peace in one body. There is one body, there is one spirit, there is one God who is above all and over all. And the oneness of the body is a powerful argument to maintain peace. You, you children, imagine if, if all of a sudden your, your right hand started reaching over and pinching your left arm. And then your left arm went and pinched your right arm. And on and on it went until you were bruised and bloody. And perhaps your right arm's going to grab a saw and cut off your left. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That's a stupid picture, right? People don't do that unless something terribly crazy is going on. Well, think of conflict in the body of Christ as the members of the body living in enmity and hostility towards one another. No, it happens, doesn't it, that sometimes uh, members of the physical body have to be removed. Amputation. But that's only in desperate situation. And it's done to save the body. It's done because of the influence or the poison in one member uh, would spread throughout the body and the person would die. But that's an extreme consequence, isn't it? And that doesn't happen by individual members just cutting off other members. No, even the imagery of the body is a powerful argument in favor of the pursuit of peace.
you were called to peace in one body. And so we're to live in thankful service as those who are reconciled to God together. And then secondly, as those who are being enriched by the word of Christ. That brings us to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the word of Christ, what is that? Well, it's important that we understand that that basically is a reference to the Holy Bible. And for us, that means that we have the complete scriptures. The word of Christ doesn't simply refer to those um, uh, red letters that some of us might have in our own personal editions of the Bible. You know, the words of Jesus in red, as if they're somehow more holy, more inspired, and uh, more the word of Christ. No, we treasure those words indeed, and they are special. Uh, but all of Scripture is uh, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus said to the Jews, you, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. The Lord Jesus Christ in both Old and New Testament is the great theme, it's the great subject of the Bible. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to think of when we hear the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you. Let the teachings of the Bible uh, reside in your hearts. Because that's more than just reading or or just, just hearing the Bible read. It's to abide. The word of Christ is to abide in us. Jesus says, uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, it shall be given to you. It's very interesting that Jesus joins together abiding in him by faith, dwelling, living in union with him. He joins that inseparably with his word abiding in us. So you want to know more of Jesus, more about Jesus, I would know more of his saved being his love to others show? Well, it's by giving attention to his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let it dwell in you richly. You know, some people have great memories, and they might even be able to memorize uh, more scripture than than others, others who are actually more spiritually minded, right? Because it's not just knowing uh, Bible verses, but it's... uh having the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly so that so that we treasure those words. We we delight in the word of God the way the psalmist did. So that more and more we we value it. We 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 taste it. We taste the goodness of God in Scripture. It's sweeter to our taste than honey. It makes us happy. It comforts us. It strengthens us. It invigorates us. And as a result of that, our, our conduct, even our speech, is affected by the Word, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, well, that equips us more and more to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love. That's what our text is uh, exhorting us to, to treasure the Word of God. And this requires constant devotion to the Word, doesn't it? Yes, it has to do with with public and with family, and with with private attention to the Word of God. Now let me say something a little bit bold, okay? And that is that everyone who is capable of reading, 
and I'm, I'm talking also about seven and eight-year-olds, everyone who is capable of reading should practice private time with the Bible. It's good for you children to have your own copy of the Bible, one that you treasure and value for yourself. And it's good to keep it at a place where you can uh, pick it up easily, probably in your bedroom. And it's good for you. At some time during the day, probably the best time is either in the morning before you go to school or maybe at night before you go to bed to read a few verses from the Bible. And your mom and dad can help you as far as uh, where to start. But to make it a practice to, to read a few verses from the Bible and to think about it and maybe pray about it. You start those habits as, at a young age and they'll, they'll develop. It's going to be hard. You're going to be tempted to give it up. You might give it up for a while, but don't, don't give it up altogether. You, you, you start doing it again. Everyone who is capable of reading ought to spend private, personal time in the Word of God. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the boy and girl who meditates on God's law, who delights in it. That's how it comes to dwell in us, in us richly. And there's a connection between family Bible reading and let me add family Bible discussion and healthy Christian families. Whether it's done at mealtime, it's probably the most convenient time. Or some other time. This is not just some some tradition that characterized certain Christian cultures. It ought to be the practice of Christian families that they read the scriptures together. And maybe dad leads a, a discussion and asks some questions and gives some explanation. Doesn't have to be long. But families that do this regularly will become spiritually healthy families. There's a connection between diligent attendance at our church education classes. All the way, from the time they start till the time you make profession of faith. Then you move on to Bible study and other things. But there's a connection to continuing in the church education classes. All the way, not only until you get to be a teenager, and there's all kinds of sporting opportunities, and that's more important than going to catechism, but throughout the entire church education program, there's a connection between diligence in these things and staying in the body of Christ. I've been around long enough to observe a connection between these kinds of things. There is a correlation. There is a correlation, brothers and sisters, between regular, diligent attendance upon the public means of grace, hearing that call to worship from God twice on Sunday, and being present to hear His Word, to sing His praise, to call upon Him together. There is a correlation a very close connection between such diligence and thriving and serving in the body of Christ. It's a criteria for meaningful service in the body of Christ to show that zeal and commitment to the worship of God. These are the ways in which the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. That's what we want, isn't it? 
We need to help each other in this. The language is plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural. Now, our English translation doesn't communicate that. See, that's one advantage of the old the old King James Version. There was a distinction between thee and you. Thee was singular. You was plural. But the pronoun here in our text is plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as the body of Christ. Richly. We help each other in this. And this equips us for mutual admonition and teaching. Admonition, that's a big word. It basically means mutual uh, instruction and encouragement. Sometimes mutual correction. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now you notice that uh, I, I, I read this sentence uh, in a way that... Um, doesn't really follow the punctuation of our text. But it's probably a better rendering of uh, of this text. There could uh, be a period after the word one another, teaching and admonishing one another, stop. And then the next thought is, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I think the ESV renders this verse in that way. It kind of divides it up. It begins in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, comma, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now the value of that attention to this text is it helps us to see that that singing is not the only way in which we teach and admonish one another. It stands alone as an activity that should characterize the people of God. Mutual teaching, mutual admonition. The Christians at Rome are com- or, or in Corinth are commended for their ability to admonish one another. It's a mark of, of spiritual maturity. And this is not only done through singing. It is done through singing. That's why it's important to sing together. And that's why it's important to, to, to sing songs um, that are doctrinally rich, that are based upon Scripture, that respect the Scripture's own songbook and make ample use of it. Because we learn by singing the psalms. We, think, we learn to think more deeply and biblically about the Christian life and struggle and worldview. And it's by singing together that we are, that we are, uh, admonishing one another indeed. And by the way, this is something that you can't get through live stream. Now live stream can be a blessing for those who can't attend. Let me say it again. Live stream can be a blessing for those who can't attend to worship service on Sunday. I didn't say don't want to. Often don't feel like it. Don't think it's important. Live stream can be a benefit to those who can't attend to worship Sunday services on Sunday. And they miss God's call to worship. They miss his exhortation to sing unto the Lord, to call upon his name. Those things take place in a special way as we do it together. Those of you who try to sing unto the Lord at home in your lounge chair watching live stream either give up or you know it's pretty pathetic. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no place for singing uh, on a, a, alone. 
but it does not compare and it's not a substitute for corporate worship, corporate singing, corporate calling upon the name of the Lord. These would uh, be two distinct consequences of uh, the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts richly. They would equip us to teach and admonish one another in Bible studies, in small groups, in catechism classes, in conversation after the worship service. And the word of Christ dwelling us in us richly comes to expression as we join together, making melody in our hearts uh, to the Lord. And that means mutual edification. And that means abounding in thanksgiving and praise. Live in thankfulness together, thirdly, as those living in union with the mediator. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or in deed, what could that possibly mean? Well, I think we must begin by the obvious, and that is that Christ should be central to our lives, and that our aim should be that all we say and do and, and think uh, reflects our relationship to the Savior. Now, of course, that's not a matter of repeating in the name of Jesus, pass the butter in the name of Jesus. No, that's ridiculous and irreverent, Right? So what does it mean to to live in the name of Jesus? What does it mean that our deliberate actions and our intentional words, as well as our casual words, should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, to do something in the name of Christ, it it means that we do uh, things that are according to his will, that are according to his command. It also means that that we learn to to live in 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 a conscious dependence upon him. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And so doing things in the name of Jesus means doing them uh, according to his word and will. It means doing it uh, with the realization of our dependence upon him. And it also means doing, uh, doing it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, I know that's very, very comprehensive. And I'm not suggesting that that every everything that we do and every word that we speak, we consciously kind of bring out these three criteria and evaluate it accordingly. Of course not. That's not the point of this language. But we may learn more and more to abide in Christ, to live in union with Him and as those who are near to Him and to live for Him. And more and more that can influence our actions and our words. Think of how that might apply to specific things. Uh, think of how that might apply to teaching a class. Our church education classes are going to start soon. It's always a joy to realize that we're able to fill up all those positions by volunteers from the congregation. Many Sunday school teachers, uh, many teachers and substitutes for the six or seven classes that meet together. And that's that's an indication of God's grace at work among us, and we're thankful for that. Well, think of how this applies to teaching your Sunday school. Well, you want to teach what the Bible says, and you want to communicate the truth of God's Word, and you you should be aware of your dependence upon the Lord to do this well. 
And that means you pray for yourself about it in your, in your preparation in the class. And you realize that God can use you to have a tremendous influence on these little children. And you want to honor and glorify him in it. Well, in a way that might be obvious, but I hope it helps to see an example. You could apply that to so many things. What does it mean to, uh, to go to work? Well, we're called to serve the Lord Christ. And again, that, that involves the awareness of our dependence upon the Lord to give us the mental and the physical strength that we need to do our jobs well. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do them with integrity. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus in our interaction with people to, to walk in wisdom to those who are outside with your speech always, uh, with grace, as it says in chapter four. Do you ever think about that? No, your job is not your mission field. Your job is your job. You've got to work hard. You can't be wasting time uh, witnessing when you should be working, right? But isn't it true that your casual interactions, the way you talk about everything is reflective of who you are? And as we're aware of that, shouldn't these be things that we pray about and ask God's help for? A number of the guys from our church went on a hike last week. I hope your brothers prayed for your hike. I prayed for you. A number of us prayed for you that you'd be safe, that your time together would be mutually encouraging, that you'd have fun together, but that you'd also uh, be built up together, even in your enjoyment of of uh, God's creation and the, the pleasures of getting out, enjoying food together. You realize that you each have something to contribute to the the spiritual life and growth of your brothers. And these are opportunities to aim at that. Do we think about it? Do we pray about it? What about a social visit? You go on a social visit. Do you ever pray that your social visit would be edifying? Or is that just for Bible study? No, no. In such interactions, do you think about Christian fellowship and how you might contribute to that, how God might be honored in your attitude when you go buy a car? You pray about it. You pray about buying a car. You pray about buying a house. Do you do these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? In a way, we could, we could give some pretty, pretty simple basic rules for Christian living that apply to almost everything. You might even say, don't do anything that you can't pray about. If you can't pray about it, that might mean you have a bad conscience about it. And you're not thinking about it in relationship to the Lord. Don't don't use anything. Don't do anything that you can't give God thanks for. Now, these are simple rules, but I think they go a long way exposing our sin, right? Sometimes they can be helpful, helpful guides that can serve a practical purpose in enabling us to evaluate what it means and what we say and do to do in relationship to our God and Savior. Teaching, admonishing, singing, Giving thanks uh, together. All important features of living together with Christ. Christ who is at the center. Because all these things are only possible and acceptable to God through Him. It says that about thanksgiving, right? Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Recognize Christ's mediation even in your thanksgiving. Your thanksgiving uh, is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ because it's imperfect. It's in a way inadequate to the wonderful benefits that you receive. 
And these benefits come to you as a child of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, we give thanks, conscious of the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But more and more, that ought to characterize our lives. We're called to be living sacrifices. And how can we do that? Well, because there was a dead sacrifice. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was a sacrifice whose blood was shed to make atonement for sin so that we don't face the consequence of our sins, but we can offer up our redeemed lives that have been saved by Jesus as living sacrifices, acceptable to God through him. With all our sins and failings and imperfections, we can serve God thankfully together because of this rich grace. Oh, may God enable us to grow in these high ideals. Right? These, lo- these are lofty ideals. This chapter is so high and holy in its description of the Christian life. But don't despair and delight in it. Pray about it. It's a revelation of the beautiful character of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we're called to conform. And we can make steps in that direction throughout this life until it's perfected when he comes again in glory. Amen.